Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast of Technology Networks. Our team of scientists turned journalists use this podcast to share the fascinating research that we cover every day. Today's podcast, I'm joined by my colleagues Karen Stewart and Molly Campbell. How are you both? Hello, I am well, thank you. Yeah, me too. Thank you for a bit. Glad to hear it. Today's podcast is on a very timely topic, the development of vaccines for COVID-19. This is a huge area and there is far too much research to fit into the time we have today. Uh, you know, I'm sure you'd love to hear a three-hour monologue on the 100 plus vaccines that are currently in development, but I think listening to the sound of my own voice that long would probably make me cry. So instead, after Molly, who's our biopharma editor, gives us a quick introduction to the concept of vaccine development, we're each going to present recent findings from one of three extremely promising candidates, uh, Moderna's messenger RNA-based vaccine, AstraZeneca and Oxford's joint candidate, which we're calling Chadox, and CanSino Biologics, a Dino-based, uh, adenovirus-based candidate which has technically already actually been approved for limited human use, uh, but kind of not really, uh, but we'll get to that shortly uh, in my section. So perhaps Molly, you could start us off. What's involved in developing a vaccine for a disease like COVID-19? Absolutely. So I think it's important for us to start by taking a step back and actually maybe recapping what vaccines are. Um, because I know, for example, there's so much in the news and the media at the moment about the development of, as you said, there's over 140 vaccines um, sort of being created at the moment for COVID. Um, not everyone has a scientific background, so it's quite useful to just recap exactly what vaccines are. So vaccines are essentially biological products, and what they do is they're designed to protect a person against an infectious disease. Now, they do this by essentially training the immune system to recognise and also fight against a pathogen. How do they achieve this? Well, vaccines are made from either sort of dead or weakened subunit forms of an organism that causes an infectious disease. And this form contains antigens. So a vaccine stimulates the body to produce an antibody memory response in an individual without actually causing an illness. So essentially there is immunity, but no sickness. And that's a key point to remember. If you remember anything from this podcast, take that home because that's important. Um, so for anyone that's listening that is unfamiliar with these terms, antigen and antibody, I'd suggest that you take a look at our antigen versus antibody article on our website, which we can link in the show notes. Um, just to quickly recap, so antibodies are Y-shaped proteins. You might recall this from any biology lessons that you might have done at school. They are produced by the B cells of the immune system when exposed to an antigen. And essentially the antibodies bind the antigen and this binding helps to eliminate the antigen. Um, so this is either by sort of direct neutralization or essentially by playing tag with other parts of the immune system and sort of causing various cascades of immune responses. So vaccines contain antigens, as we've said. From the infectious organism. So once a vaccine is introduced into the body, it stimulates the B lymphocytes of the immune system to respond by producing plasma cells, which in turn produce these antibodies that are specific to that antigen. So this is what we call the primary response. 
Now, some of these B cells that are stimulated will become what we call memory B cells, and these essentially remember the antigen. And so when the antigen enters the body potentially in the future, it causes the activation of the antibody response and eliminates the disease. So it's kind of like a memory system. So there are many different types of vaccines um, that can be created and that produce immune responses in different ways. Um, so the vaccines that we're going to talk about today are quite different. So you'll learn a little bit more about some of the types of vaccines sort of through our conversation. So we're here present day and we are facing a global pandemic. And this global pandemic is known as COVID-19 caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. COVID-19 is an infectious disease for which we don't really have a specific treatment that is effective across all populations that are infected to make people better. So despite sort of the testing measures that are in place, despite contact tracing and quarantine methods, which do help to control the spread of COVID-19, the only way to reduce the threat of this virus is for enough of the population to have immunity to it. So this is why a lot of scientists and politicians are placing emphasis on the value of a COVID-19 vaccine, because the only other sort of option at the moment is people actually become infected to gain that immunity, which is obviously risque and can cost a lot of lives. So SARS-CoV-2 has presented a humongous challenge to scientists across the globe. And we've seen some really impressive research over the past few months in the bid to test a vaccine for COVID-19. Now, vaccine testing, manufacturing and approvals is a process that under normal conditions can take several years, sort of similar to the development of a pharmaceutical drug. But as of today, so we are recording on July 30th, 2020, there are over 140 vaccines in various stages of preclinical and clinical testing. 25 of those vaccines are being tested in humans. Now, if you're quite keen to keep up to date with these figures, you can check out our coronavirus tracker, which we will also link in the show notes. And we have a separate page, which is keep up to date with coronavirus vaccine research, which we can also link in the show notes. So hopefully that's given our listeners a bit of background about what vaccines are and why we need one for COVID-19. And so I think we're going to sort of progress a little bit into conversation about some of the vaccines that are furthest along in the clinical testing process. Absolutely, Molly. Do you want to kick us off by talking a little bit about the Moderna vaccine that uh, has been recently announced as, as going into phase three trials over in the US? Absolutely. So the vaccine that we're talking about is mRNA1273, um, a bit of a technical name. I, I do wish they'd name them something a little bit more easier to follow and understand, but hey, hey. COVID um, vaccine five. COVID yeah, vaccine there we go. maybe we six. just number every single one that is in development in chronological order. Um, so this is a vaccine that has been developed by Moderna and it's in association with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, or NIAID, um, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. So the vaccine is an mRNA-based vaccine, which is a what I would call an emerging vaccine. So to date, none have actually been approved for human use by the Food and Drug Administration or the EMA. So how does it work? So mRNA is the intermediate molecule between DNA and proteins. RNA version of a gene that 
exits the cell's nucleus, travels to the cytoplasm and is translated to produce proteins, which are sort of the workhorses of the cell and the body. So an mRNA vaccine encodes antigens that are identical to or resemble a specific pathogen. So when this type of vaccine is delivered into the body, the mRNA is translated and the adaptive immune system that we've talked about is triggered to produce antibodies against that pathogen. So mRNA1273, which is the vaccine that has been developed by Moderna, encodes for a perfusion-stabilised form of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Now, you've probably heard quite a lot about this spike protein. Um, it's essentially part of the virus's structure that helps it gain entry into host cells and cause that infection. So, interesting points to know. Moderna actually haven't brought a product to market as of yet, but mRNA1273 has actually received fast-track designation by the Food and Drug Administration. So, we're talking about this vaccine today because there's been some news this week in which it has actually entered phase three clinical trials. Um, if you'd like to know more about sort of the different phases of clinical trials, we can link some further information in the show notes below. We have um, an interesting article on that topic that can provide further details. But this phase three trial has been warranted because of the positive data that has been retrieved thus far in phase one and phase two trials. So we published a piece on some of this data, which we can also link in the show notes below. Um, but this was interim data from the phase one trial. Now the phase one trial primary objective was to evaluate the safety and reactogenicity of a two dose vaccination schedule of mRNA1273, um, given 20 day, 28 days apart across five different dosages in healthy adults. Now, the phase one trial has finished recruitment. It has recruited 120 people um, in the United States, but this interim analysis data is on 45 healthy adults from that sort of cohort. Um, the data is published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which we can also link below. Um, and basically what this initial data has shown is that mRNA1273 does induce binding antibodies to the full-length spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 in all of the participants after that first vaccination. By day 15, the participants had zero converted, which I think Karen is going to talk about in a little bit more detail, but this basically describes the development of an antibody to a specific pathogen, which can be sort of detected in, in the blood. Further data showed that at day 43, the neutralising activity against SARS-CoV-2 could be observed in all of the participants. Um, and at the dose of 100 microgram, basically these antibody levels were 4.1 fold above those that were seen in a reference group of convalescent sera, which is serum from individuals that had actually been infected by COVID-19, which can be used as a reference when testing vaccines. After two vaccinations, the data showed that at day 53, the mean levels of antibodies that were seen in the convalescent sera obtained from sort of 38 individuals with confirmed diagnosis showed that there was a clear dose response seen in the individuals that received between the 25 microgram dosage and the 100 microgram dosage levels. Um, and the, there was sort of an additional increase at the higher dosage of 250 microgram, but this was sort of 
really minimal compared to the 25 and 100 microgram dosages. So overall, I realise I have gone into quite a bit of sort of, I get a bit excited about this research, so a bit of detail there. Um, the preliminary studies data kind of shows essentially that there is an immune response being produced. So importantly, we need to know safety here. So obviously in clinical trials, especially the phase one and phase two trials, there is a huge focus on the safety of the vaccine. Um, so the vaccine was generally safe and well tolerated. Um, and the most commonly reported adverse event was the pain at injection site in the 100 microgram dosage. That was reported in 100% of that interim analysis. However, I mean, this is quite a common side effect with a lot of vaccines. Um, so I don't think it's, it's really possible. sore. Yeah, really, really sore, really painful. Um, actually, is one of the things that I think makes a lot of people dread having vaccines. Um, so that's the data from the phase one trial. Now, this trial is still ongoing alongside a phase two trial, but combined these data have led to a phase three trial. Now, what this phase three trial essentially does is adds further data onto the sort of million dollar question of does this vaccine work? So the study has begun enrollment. Um, it will enroll approximately 30,000 people in the United States. 15,000 of which will receive the vaccine, 15,000 will receive a placebo. And the trial is testing a dosage of 100 micrograms. Um, and so the primary endpoint is the prevention of symptomatic COVID-19 disease. So in a nutshell, that's mRNA1273, guys. Do we have any comments or thoughts, any, any questions? I think it was interesting that you briefly mentioned uh, seroconversion there, Molly. Now, Karen's our immunology editor, and I think she might be able to talk in a bit more detail than I can about what seroconversion is and, and how important it is in the context of judging a vaccine's efficacy. Absolutely. I will touch on that a little bit more in um, discussing uh, the vaccine that I'm going to talk about. I can give you a, a little overview now. So seroconversion gets banded around a lot, especially at the moment, and I don't think necessarily a lot of the general public will know what that means or the significance or the importance when you're evaluating a vaccine. So seroconversion is essentially saying you've got antibodies in your blood, so in your serum, that uh, react, they recognise a specific antigen, which is what Molly talked about. Um, so it means that your body's seen that antigen before and it's mounted an immune response to it and it's formed those antibodies against it. So it, it's the first step in ha in having immunity to something. However, just to say that something something you've seroconverted to, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will protect you if you see that pathogen again. So I think it's a really important differentiation to make. Seroconversion doesn't necessarily equal protection. Um, the other aspect of that is neutralizing antibodies. So that's something else that's mentioned a lot in the context of um, in the context of vaccines. So you're not only showing that those antibodies are there, but in an experimental, in a lab-based setting, you're showing that those antibodies that are in this blood sample will neutralize uh, live virus. So it's it's still not showing that it will protect a human um, if you have those antibodies, but it's a better indication that those antibodies are there and they're actually effective in doing something to fight that virus. So that's kind of seroconversion in a nutshell. I don't know if that helps. No, definitely. I I think um, I do have a couple other points about 
Molly's uh, the vaccine that she's mentioned, but I think it would be quite useful to to have a wee discussion after we've we've heard all all three because I think what the the most interesting aspects are how the differences between these different trials, especially the kind of basic types of vaccine being used, because honestly, prior to the the outbreak, I had no appreciation of how many different bases there are for for uh, vaccines um, and. I think uh, Karen, if you want to talk a little bit about Chadox, we might hear uh, hear some of the the fundamental differences between a an adenovirus based vaccine like that one and the, the RNA based virus that Molly's just mentioned. Do you want to go into a bit more detail about the Oxford yeah, vaccine? Absolutely. So as Rory mentioned, uh, Chadox one is based on an adenovirus, so it is uh, fundamentally different to the vaccine that Molly was discussing. It's still based on the spike protein that we're hearing a lot about in relation to COVID. Um, so that's the, the protein that's on the surface and it helps the, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus to enter your cells. Um, so in the adenovirus-based vaccine, the adenovirus itself is just a carrier for the uh, SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Um, the adenovirus has been um, modified so it itself can't replicate. So it's not gonna do you any harm. It's just a carrier to uh, allow though the component of the disease you're trying to vaccinate against to actually get into your cells um, and into your body so that your body can recognize it and man and a more appropriate immune response. It's seeing it in the context of a, a viral threat, so to speak. Um, so that's basically how it's different from the one that Molly was talking about. Um, so with Chadox one, um, to give a little bit of background, they've already done some uh, work with the adenoviral uh, vector before with MERS, so it's quite similar to SARS. Um, so from that, they uh, decided on a dose of five times 10 to the 10 uh, viral particles. So it's quite a high dose, um, but in the context of the current outbreak, uh, they felt that it was important to go in with a reasonably high dose, as long as it, it's safe, and that's a very important consideration, it needs to be safe. Um, but a higher dose is more likely to induce a good, strong immune response from people. Um, and especially if you're in vaccinating a very large population, you, if you can have a vaccine where you do one big dose and it gives you protection, that would be ideal. Uh, obviously, if you're having to go back with maybe like three or four doses of a vaccine, it's a lot more of a, a challenge in terms of producing enough vaccine, getting everyone vaccinated. So they decided to go in with this one high dose. Um, so they recruited 1,077 uh, people into the study. These are all from uh, age group 18 to 55, people that were healthy, um, roughly 50-50 men and women. Interesting point to note, 90% of the people on the study were actually white. So there's not a huge ethnic diversity. And we've heard in the press quite a bit about the differences that uh, COVID was having on those of ethnic uh, backgrounds, um, so the BAME population. So it's one important thing to highlight uh, in this study. So they divided them into four groups. Um, people from each of the groups received either the vaccine or a placebo. Uh, in this case, they did actually use another vaccine as a placebo rather than just um, uh, a saline or anything like this, because adenoviral vaccines are known to give a bit of an adverse reaction. You know, maybe bit of pain, bit of swelling. So if they hadn't used another equivalent vaccine as the placebo, people who weren't in the vaccine, in the Chadox one group, it would have been quite obvious. 
So from the point of view of keeping this, this is a single blinded study, from the point of view of keeping the blinding, they used another vaccine as the, as the control group. So all in, in 10 of the um, participants, they also gave a second vaccination. So for the others, just one big vaccine, and then followed them for 28 days. But in 10 of the participants at day 28, post the first vaccination, they gave them a booster vaccination. Uh, just to see how it impacted on uh, their antibody response. So highlights from this showed that generally there was good seroconversion at day 28. Um, they didn't actually look at neutralising antibodies in the whole subset because the neutralising antibody assays are quite labour intensive to do. So they took a subset of those 35 people plus the 10 that also have the second vaccination and looked at neutralising antibodies. Um, and they found they used three different neutralising antibody tests. In one of them, 100% of them had neutralising antibodies. Another one um, was 32 out of the 35. Um, and then in the third assay, 23 out of 37 had neutralising antibodies. So quite, it's encouraging data. Uh, there are high, high levels of neutralising antibodies in these patients. As I said, just because you've got neutralising antibodies doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to correlate to protection in a real life situation. So if those participants were then to encounter the coronavirus, there's no, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they would definitely be protected from infection with that. So, and as with all of the other vaccination studies that are going on at the moment, the real proof of the pudding, if you like, the, the real test of a vaccine will be in a challenge study. However, with human challenge studies, there are obviously there's a big ethical question there because you're knowingly infecting people with a with a, a virus with a disease, uh, and the problem with doing a human vaccine challenge study at the moment is with SARS-CoV-2, there isn't what they call a, a rescue treatment. So if it was for something like bacterial pneumonia, you can actually nuke it with antibiotics if something if it's if it's not going to plan you can treat with antibiotics um, and restore your participant to health but as we've heard with SARS-CoV-2 there are all sorts of uh, complications there's no easy way to treat someone if things are, are aren't going so well um, so there is a bit of an ethical challenge there has however been a large advocacy group um, of 30,000 people who've signed up and it's supported by over 15 Nobel laureates, a lot of research scientists as well. And these are of young, healthy people uh, who are volunteering themselves uh, to go into a human clinical trial. Um, and these are 30,000 people from over 140 countries from lots of ethnic, different ethnic backgrounds as well. Um, so there is that support there and people that are willing to participate in something like this. Um, and so I'm just going to highlight some of the shortcomings of the study so far. I mentioned the lack of ethnic diversity in this one. It's also a relatively small um, population. Only 10 people received two vaccinations. Um, also the age group. So the target age group for vaccination are obviously your really at risk group. So these are elderly immunocompromised people. Um, whereas the, the group used in this phase one, phase two trial, they were 18 to 55, so they're not in the higher risk group. So you need to expand to increase the age ranges, so paediatric studies, studies in um, older people, more ethnic diversity, larger numbers, 
So the, this it's encouraging, but the, I think the message is there's still a way to go. Uh, I might briefly now go on to talk about the cancellation biologics uh, candidate, uh, which is uh, again a adenovirus uh, based uh, vaccine. It's adenovirus type five, which I think is potentially slightly different from the one. Uh, used in the the Oxford study, and I, I suspect that will actually have some implications for its efficacy, uh, which I'll go into in more detail in a little bit. So, uh, this is a collaboration between a private uh, development company, Cancer Biologics, and the Academy of Military Medical Sciences in China. So, there's there's quite a bit of importance put on that latter involvement because, as I mentioned earlier, this is. Technically, depending on how you want to characterize it, an approved vaccine. It's already been approved um, by the Chinese government to be tested on soldiers uh, as part of the, the Academy of Military Medical Sciences involvement. But of course, there's a uh, you know that that's it's hardly standard procedure. There is currently no phase three clinical trial trial data available. The trial I'll be describing here is purely a phase two trial. It's uh, again a, a reasonable that at at, uh, at bulk um, volunteer size. There's 508 volunteers, but uh, as Karen's already mentioned, when we break that down into the different uh, trial areas, the, the numbers do start to get a lot lower. So they've brought they've broken it into three treatment groups here. Um, Karen mentioned that uh, the Oxford study used what is a normally high uh, dosage of five times ten to the ten viral particles per mil. Uh, that here is actually the low. Uh, dosage because they've gone for a, a twice as strong dosage of one times 10 to the 11 viral particles per milliliter. Based on uh, previous studies they've done in preclinical models, the researchers have said that they felt that that higher dose would be the, the most effective one. So there's a ratio here of two to one to one between the highest dose, the lowest dose, and the placebo, um, which here isn't a, a different type of, of vaccine, it's simply the inactivated um, adenovirus uh, particles without any um, any constituent of, of SARS-CoV-2 added in. So again, there's quite different approaches, whilst the Oxford approach has used multiple um, dosages in, in some patients, this is all just with one dosage, and there's obviously different types of um, uh, dosage amounts being considered as for results in, in their group, um, again, there was quite convincing evidence of uh, reaction. So the headline was a seroconversion rate of uh, 96% and 97%, um, but that does seem to have just been of binding antibodies and, and crucially uh, not the neutralizing antibodies with, um, with neutralizing antibodies that drops to 59% and 47% for the higher and lower groups respectively. And uh, there, there seems to be some pretty robust uh, T cell responses, um, as I think has already been mentioned. You know, it's it's not all about the antibodies and and um, having input from cellular responses. So T cells are involved in um, stimulating antibody production and also fighting the virus in a in a cell killing kind of uh, approach. Um, in in the cancino results, there's there's quite robust um, T cell activation, which is what we'd want to see. Um, with regards to safety, um, there were some more severe adverse reactions reported, but that was just in uh, a smaller number of participants. And, and um, 
none of the, the reactions seen were of the, the most severe categories. So these are things like fever and such like. It seems to have been quite similar to the, the ones reported in the, the Oxford study, which if I remember right, were often uh, mitigated by taking paracetamol or, or a simple over-the-counter drug. So um, it's it's important to note that um, these these reactions aren't anywhere as severe as the, the symptoms of, of COVID-19 itself. Uh, what the authors kind of conclude at the end of it is that, in fact, the lower dose seems to be um, sufficient. And their usage of this much, much higher dose, this 1 times 10 to the 11 viral particle dose, isn't, isn't necessary to be able to get uh, um, a safe and significant immune response after a, a single immunization. Um, going into the limitations of the study, um, I point out that once again, uh, there's a, a really small amount of people are are included that are of the most vulnerable group which we want to target. Whilst there is a number of included, I was actually quite shocked, Karen, when you said that the Oxford study cut it off at uh, 55 because we're quite clearly seeing, it, certainly in the UK, that um, you know it's, it's people above that age group that are being affected. Um, but in this this study here by Cansino, just 13% of participants were aged 65 or older. Um, another quite interesting uh, limitation of the study is the use of this adenovirus 5 vector. Now, something that's been noted again and again with adenovirus-based vaccines is the risk of uh, natural immunity to that adenovirus car uh, carrier being an issue. So in a large percentage of the world's population, and this quite critically varies between different populations, there's already present uh, some immune responses against adenoviruses. These are, these are viruses that carry things like uh, smaller diseases like the common cold, for example, or some, some strains of the common cold are carried by adenoviruses. And um, in, for example, uh, Indian populations, um, the rate of people that uh, respond, um, have immune responses to adenoviruses can be high as 80%. Uh, in the US, it's, it's much lower, around 30%. Um, older people who are more likely to have an exposure history to these adenoviruses uh, might be more tolerant of the, the higher doses um, given of, of these vaccines. And their immune responses um, would be more limited than, than people that hadn't been exposed to the adenovirus vector beforehand. This therefore kind of uh, highlights that even with a single type of viral vector. Um, there, there can be these variations between populations, and this is why we're really still getting into the, the key issue, I think, which is how these phase three trials will be um, designed. So I, I know you both have, have mentioned some some aspects of the, the differences between our studies. What what do you think are the, the most significant differences that will have to be addressed in, in a phase three trial? Um. I think from my perspective, I realised I didn't actually talk about the uh, sample in the mRNA1273 um, preliminary results. So uh, similar findings to, to the studies that you guys have talked about. So again, the population was primarily white and the age group um, of the preliminary sample averaged the mean age was sort of mid to early 30s. So I think this is you know, this is a problem that isn't just sort of applicable to, to vaccine research. It's a, a wider a wider issue in scientific research. But 
the idea of actually having a representative population that you are testing a vaccine in that could essentially be distributed across the entire globe i'm i'm a bit i'm quite shocked actually by these these samples and obviously the um sample size for the phase three moderna trial is thirty thousand. now dr fauci was actually asked in uh, the interview that i talked about with cnn about the diversity of the sample and he was quite vague um he basically summarized by saying the population is representative of the united states uh, no sort of specifics on sort of ethnicity age etc but yeah so to talk about sort of what was one of the main kind of issues here i think it's definitely ensuring that these samples are representative i don't know what you guys feel about that as well i mean from I can understand why at a phase one, two level, you would be looking at a, a younger, healthier population, because when you're addressing the point of view of safety, um, you don't want to be putting your most vulnerable at risk. If you put it into a, a younger, healthier population and you find that it's very safe, then I think you probably go into a phase three with a bit more confidence that you're not going to um, adversely affect your older population in your in your larger study sample. So I, I can see the logic there, but I think in the next round of testing, it definitely needs to be addressed. No, that absolutely makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really considered that. Um, it, it, it just seems that COVID in particular, as opposed to many other diseases that things have been trialled for, that the the age differences are, are so stark and the, 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 the target group is so well known. Um, it's particularly difficult when you consider that, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, people um, will have more comorbidities as they age, and, and these are the kind of things that the safety studies will have to watch out for. Um, I, I I don't know, Karen. Had you read anything about the the risk of adenovirus-based immunity in the the Oxford study? I know they used a slightly different um, adenovirus vector, so I don't know if that was that was potentially less of a risk than for the the uh, Cansino study. Uh, it wasn't mentioned actually yeah, in the discussion section, the, um, the possibility of pre-existing immunity. Uh, from what I can see that the background level of adenovirus um, immunity in the UK population is relatively low. But as you've mentioned with yours, it, it varies across the world, across the different um, ethnic populations. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how that pans out when they roll it out to a much larger sample size. Molly, one question I had for for yourself as as biopharma editor, you'll be more familiar with the the different stages of clinical trials. And as we've already mentioned to our readers, if they want to to read more about what's involved in these exact stages, um, we'll include an article below the line so you can have a read. But as I gather it, it, it seems really common with these COVID trials not to just have a, a phase one or a phase two, but to kind of blend them all together into a, a heady mix of uh, different phase one slash two slash slash three trials. And in some cases, clearly the um, the governments that are backing these respective trials are encouraging the, the companies to produce, you know, up to millions of doses of these viruses before we actually know whether or not they're effective, just on the off chance that if they are effective at phase three, then then they can be ramped up very easily. Are, are there significant risks to that approach or is that that's something you'd expect from from the, the, the risks associated with COVID and, and the urgency associated? I mean, 
look, I'm, I can't speak from sort of a clinical perspective, obviously, in terms of risks, etc. But I do think there are sort of a few, what I would call sort of flags here, um, with regards to the fact that it, it kind of makes it very obvious that we are facing extremely high pressures. So obviously, I spoke about the fact that the FDA have set the bar of efficacy at 50%. Now, this has been a focal point of some controversy. Um, so, for example, I, I read an interview, I think it was Gregory Poland from the Mayo Vaccine Research Group, um, and this is off the top of my head, so don't quote me on this, but he kind of said it was sort of a low to appropriate bar for a first generation vaccine. Um, and in the same interview, there was sort of discussion on basically this essentially says that the FDA is recognising that our first vaccine will not be our best. So, you know, sort of things like that kind of make it very transparent that these are difficult times. They're times that people haven't had to face before. There are challenges here that are quite sort of inconceivable based on previous sort of pandemics and it it just seems that everything is working as fast as possible to basically get something out there. I think as well with regards to the safety there are sort of what I would say quite unique things taking place so I interviewed um, Novavax's CEO earlier on in the year and he sort of pointed to the idea that there is the possibility, the FDA do offer this, the opportunity to bypass sort of certain stages of animal testing um, in sort of really unique circumstances. So there are these sort of various different aspects and avenues that can be sort of progressed down in extreme circumstances. Um, but I suppose going back to what Dr Fauci said, there is also technologies that we have now and also the fact that we are in a global pandemic and there is so much collaboration taking place at the moment that is contributing to the speed that we are seeing sort of vaccines being developed through this this process but i mean i suppose one angle to look at it is does this mean that under normal circumstances these timelines necessarily have to be as long as they typically are i don't know it's sort of something to perhaps consider but yeah yeah, absolutely. I think the the talk of having a, a vaccine towards the end of this year or the start of next year would have been unheard of even even a year ago for any um, any condition. The uh, the 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 final thing I wanted to mention briefly is the 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 thing I find most surprising was how untested some of these vectors are, and I I, I don't know enough about the the background to vaccines to to know if this is you know, it's highly unusual they're using, um, I think in both our cases, um, molly uh, viral vectors that haven't really been proven in humans at all. Um, with adenovirus 5, uh, the only adenovirus based vaccine that's been approved for use is uh, a rabies vaccine that's been approved for use in animals and it's currently still um, not made it to, to the stage where any human uh, vaccines have been approved and as far as I'm aware it's the, the same for the MR, mRNA based vaccines right this is quite a, a novel and unexpe unexpected technology to use why, why have we we relied on, on these technologies that are, are so novel? 
So just to sort of emphasise, the mRNA1273 vaccine is delivered via a nanolipid particle platform, which is um, Moderna's proprietary platform. So, I mean, based on sort of studies that were coming out prior to COVID-19, there was sort of emerging evidence of the utility and the safety of these different vectors and delivery systems. I think if anything, COVID-19 has just emphasised or heightened sort of this, this need to further explore these alternative technologies on the basis that we need to speed these timelines up. Um, for example, Moderna, as I said, hasn't brought a, a product to market as of yet, and yet the the vaccine has received FDA fast track approval. Um, and one of the sort of proponents for this is the idea that this vaccine can be produced in large quantities in much faster timescales compared to some of the other vaccines that are out there. Um, so yeah, I just, I think these technologies are available, they are in development, it's just under normal circumstances, I suppose, when you're not in a global pandemic, there isn't that much sort of heightened focus on them. Um, I don't know if Karen, if you, if you sort of have anything to comment from the Oxford study with regards to the delivery system. Um, well, I mean, I think there's obviously a lot of background work that's been going on with the adenovirus vector and with a lot of other novel vaccine uh, delivery methods. Um, I think this has given it very much a stage for people to sort of throw everything they possibly can at it. They're willing to try anything. There's also the funding question as well. So there's maybe more funding there for people to be able to progress the work that they're doing. So I think maybe that is a factor as well. Um, so yeah, I think it's just uh, an example of the scientific community pulling together and trying every different avenue that they can. I think it's really exciting times and you know, one potential silver lining that might come out of this is that vaccine technology as a whole that isn't distinct to, to SARS-CoV-2 will be advanced by the, as you say, increased funding and urgency that we've seen from, from studies like the ones we've discussed today. Now, at the risk of actually going into that three-hour monologue that I uh, worried about at the start of this podcast, I think we should perhaps call it a day there. But thank you both for your really interesting insights on these these really exciting papers. Um, I uh, know we'll be back very soon with another opinionated science. So please, wherever you're listening, uh, subscribe, share, and comment on our podcast. Please don't keep your opinions to yourself. Thank you very much. Thank you.